Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. back again on esoteric america and we are still making our way through connecticut we've talked about the native american stonescape we've talked about some characters like pt barnum and we may even come back to pt shout out to uh jason who may be joining us on the show but i also want to give a huge huge shout out to uh somebody that has supported our show specifically uh with the super chats so shout out to our super chat people on youtube now that we're getting super chats we might have to make our own esoteric america youtube channel so i don't have to start cutting you guys a check uh but we'll see i don't know um i just want to give this person a shout out because they're very generous Big love very generous uh let's see but anyways we got a lot to talk about today and i shouldn't delay the introductions because you know me i'm mystic mark i've got tara next to me hey tara's here we've got chad not hiding unlike our other co-host who usually gets introduced next we got chad right here uh looking like he's taking the stargate with him with that shirt today i love it what's going on chad how are you doing great guys looking forward to part three adding some more layers to the layer cake that connecticut is mm. so looking forward to it tonight guys see what you guys got what mr romy's got gonna right. be another good one Right, right. And Roman, of course, he is Roman the ghost during this episode, hiding in the background, uh, but he will be sharing his screen. Roman, how are you, sir? Swelling well. I'm a little bit horrified um, because this this research for this week's ep- uh, episode and show kind of has brought up some childhood trauma, uh, but apparently not just mine, apparently a bunch of other Americans and people in general have uh, had the same childhood trauma that I have. Uh, and it all stems from Connecticut. Who to thunk? Interesting. Huh. That's very vague and mysterious, but okay. I'm sure you'll explain uh, that more of that. But uh, before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to Peter Shell. 
and Ka's name, who both supported uh, with Super Chats. Big shout out to Peter Shell uh, supporting us via YouTube. You can also get the show on Rockfin. And of course, if you're an audio listener like me, you can get the podcast anywhere for free uh, on any podcast app. But anyways, back to the show. I love pirate stories. Uh, I, I just, they're just enthralling because it's like, did they happen? Are oh, they yeah. folklore? No, they happen. They're real. I mean, pirates were real. I mean, privateers were basically privates just under the, you know, order of a certain government, right? So you had like American privateers, English privateers. You had all kinds of privateers who would do the same thing pirates would do, just. You know, pirates were essentially doing it for their own good or their own gain, uh, whereas those privateers were doing it for some, you know, military or crown. But uh, but Captain Kidd, I always heard about Captain Kidd because of the whole, you know, Barry's treasure in uh, in Charles Island. But apparently he is said to have buried treasure in a ton of places all along the the east coast so yeah. i don't think the captain kid story is de- necessarily a milford you know legend but it's certainly but we do something. have a parade yeah it's definitely remembered here in in uh in milford there's a parade and the oyster festival each year which i've always had a fond memory of the oyster festival i don't know it's kind of cheesy it's like you know uh it just Ooh, that's oysters rockefeller bro cheesy oysters oh <laughs> <laughs> no i i saw blue oyster cult at the oyster festival though which was pretty cool oh, yeah but that's uh, fitting but yeah william so... william kidd was alive from 1645 to 1701 and he i guess was from scotland right you said that so where where were we? Did did anyone ever find the treasure, or did you f- get the, uh, a story about that and about people trying to look for the treasure on Charles Island? Because I've heard similar stories oh. to the one on Oak Island, where there's like a trap, <laughs> you know, pitfall, and you know the water just caved the, in. Um, oh, just the. I was just gonna say the only treasure that I found was. Uh, the herons, mm. the herons, when they all gathered by the, the water at, there's a rook, set. there's a rookery of herons on Charles Island. Wow. Rookery is the term of a group That's of a herons, right? Didn't we learn Ooh, that nice. last summer? Rookery, right? Nice. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Yeah, it's a bird sanctuary now, but there's all this lore about it, the the Charles Island being cursed because, you know, um, there have been many people who've tried to build on it and the Native Americans were like, yeah, no, that's our sacred island when they started seeing like uh, a church built on it and other things, a fish company built on it. They were like all doomed so maybe there was some curse that the native americans placed on it it didn't you say that on santa cursed charles island do you have that in there yeah well let's get to oh. it oh like that's all i found that it said okay was that well, what else yeah, do you they, got they cursed it 
Um, I see you got more slides there. Yep. Well, and then um, another part of Milford. Is oh well, it's it's actually not Milford. What Orange? Shelton Indian Wells is. You could talk about that. I mean, we're talking about New Haven County. Milford, for people who aren't from around here, is a part of New Haven County. Connecticut, and, uh, right? We're talking about Connecticut. I mean, really, like we said in the beginning, New Haven's already in a small state, so we can't uh, we can't just do four episodes about New Haven alone. But yeah, tell us about uh, Indian Wells. I, I used to go there when I was a kid. Yeah, I went in high school a lot. So um, it's on the, it's on the, well, I think this is really neat actually because it's on the, um, the Housatonic River and the Housatonic River is, and it's also in Shelton, which is connected to Derby. It, well, it's in the same area, which is the, the root chakra ley line. Mm, yeah, um, it's the root chakra point on uh, Peter Shampoo's chakra <coughs> line. So that whole area, Shelton, awesome. Derby, um, and Sonia, it's all at the confluence of the Housatonic and the Naugatuck River. And uh, and yeah, that's the root chakra. And it definitely has a kind of like root, you know, it is a grounding spot sort of space when you're over there you can't help but kind of look around the valley and see the way the earth is shaped but it also has like these old factories that are just like shells of what they used to be you know some of them are apartments there's a big you know trash dump right at the confluence of the river so it's definitely a root chakra in the sense Mm -hmm. that there's some defecation like all of the u.s is pollution yeah gathers in derby connecticut yeah there's there's and augatuck river and the hoostonic river are both polluted actually hoostonic was polluted all the way up in massachusetts near pittsfield right and now the the river has mercury in it and uh river has historically been poisoned actually a type of leather synthetic leather was named after Nagatuck. it's called naga hide and it was a pretty popular like le- synthetic leather in the you know early 1900s and you know if you've ever smelt a leather factory they smell very disgusting and they leave a lot of really gross like bleaches and other things that they use to treat the leather you know that all leaches into the soil and Mm. into the river so yeah you know it's it's sad to to talk about you know because at one at one time this was a beautiful thriving ecosystem and now it's you know two rivers that are choked by almost five dams and you know it's 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 an ecosystem that's been altered by man, uh, hopefully not beyond repair, but it's definitely has that root chakra. I mean, you go up to the, the, the north part of the chakra ley line, you have like the beauty of Vermont and the green mountains and it's pristine. And, you know, the crown chakra, I think is all the way up in Canada near the, uh, the St. John's river or past that maybe where 
the the Lawrence River comes yeah. in from the Atlantic. I, I'm not sure, but That's either way, you know, there's a big difference between southern <laughs> New England and northern New England as far as like <laughs> beauty and nature and 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 even um, economic status goes. There are a lot of wealthy people near New York City, but a lot of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire are. Uh, you know, blue collar and below that, you know, and there are rich enclaves of people, but for the most part, uh, it's a pretty, pretty sparse place and a hard place to live. So you get a lot of rural mountainous types of people that you might not expect when you think of like clam chowder and all the other things that New England is known for. So, uh, yeah, the chakra ley line is cool because it goes along a bunch of mountain chains and the one that it goes through in Connecticut is called the Berkshires. But, uh, yeah, and so there's a few places along it that are named after some Indian um tribes and princesses and there's this one place indian wells that is um well where'd it go around it is sorry okay um it's west of the Housatonic river and it's known as um the river of the falls, obviously. Um, that's what Indian Wells was, or it was named <coughs> that after the Algonquin name Pudituk, which means river of the falls. And so around there, Indian Wells, um, a few streets around it are named um, what, Princess Winona Drive, Hiawatha Trail, and Longfellow Road. Um, and that's cool because the Pogaset, well, I mean, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> the, the, um, so, okay. <laughs> It was so named after the park is traversed from north to south by the Pogasset Trail and a boat launch provides access to Lake Housatonic. There's smallmouth and largemouth bass, white catfish, white perch, yellow perch, American eel, sunfish, and carp in the waters there. Um, and it was named after, because of the Romeo and Juliet-like Native American legend surrounding the park's 15-foot horsetail waterfall and splash pool at the bottom. And then around the falls and the pool is Indian Wells, or is the Princess Winona Drive, Hiawatha Trail, and Longfellow Road. There are many versions of the Princess Winona legend, most revolving around the distress of a young girl facing a forced marriage to a man she did not love. Early pioneer Zebulon Pike wrote, uh, this is an excerpt from a, a magazine um, or article, 
um, by uh, first recorded by a, um, a pioneer, Zebulon Pike. I was shown a point of rocks from which a Sioux maiden cast herself and was dashed to a thousand pieces on the rocks below. She had been informed that her friends intended matching her to a man she despised, having been, refu having been refused the man she had chosen. She ascended to the hill, singing her death song, and before they could overtake her and obviate her purpose, she took the lover's leap. So that that's one mm. legend. Um, Super interesting. Mm. Yeah, haven't Just we briefly, talked about that happens. Go that's ahead. the uh, same legend as Niagara Falls. Mm. Identical legend is the maid of the oh. mist. Okay. Supposed to be forced to marry old sweaty hands, and she jumps off the falls. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that, that, it connects to, like, it's the same, you see that that same legend so many places mm -hmm. ross ben talks yeah. about it in yeah, philadelphia that's what i was gonna say yeah, awesome and then and that's like queen winona was her name um and she's on the statue in outside of the philadelphia art museum mm, right and um we went there yeah we saw it <laughs> Yeah, and, and then and also Longfellow is like the like if they have the picture here, the the three the three streets are connected, um, like all in the same area. And so Hiawatha Trail is right there and Longfellow Road and Longfellow wrote the poem Song of Hiawatha. Um and that song of Hiawatha is based on this same legend um, about the well it's it's actually based on some Nanabozo traditions too but about the adventures of an Ojibwe warrior named Hiawatha and the tragedy of his love for Minnehaha a Dakota woman um, and the events take place in that story at the pictured rocks in Michigan, Chad, which is cool. Um, yeah. and, um, and then, so Minnehaha is said to mean laughing water and waterfall. Um, so if like Minnehaha and Queen Winona or Winona princess or queen, um, are the same or interchangeable, I guess. Then, and that means firstborn. So that all connects to what Ross Ross has found about Queen Winona and how they uh, her um, Johann Kelp his. He was betrayed by his associate who pretended to be friends with him so that he could get close to Winona 
because so that he could throw her off this cliff into this ravine to um to basically get her out of the picture so that they could then i think sign penn's treaty or something do you know if i got that right um yeah so that happened and then they were they were able to do that and then create america as we know it mm. we've known it um, i'm sure we'll, we'll revisit that when we get to philadelphia mm. we ought to do a show on philadelphia at some point and uh yeah for sure that connects i mean lilinoa well and that's that's supposed to be the origin of what's called lover's leap right right which so, is spread all across everywhere yeah all across <laughs> united America, states you have anyway. these legends and then so then there's the lover's leap bridge in um in new milford connecticut right which is where your family is mostly from and we're from milford so and then that was built by the berlin iron bridge company um and that connects to well do you remember we found we had found a uh on we, the quinnipiac river yeah a red bright red, red bridge built bridge. by this uh berlin iron ironworks company and it was kind of interesting because they had built all these bridges all across the country in some places that we've talked about i think as far west as el paso is is where they built a bridge but uh but yeah that's you know those are stories for a different day <laughs> yeah well i just thought it was neat because then following that it um connects to what the Berlin Iron Bridge Company's greatest, uh, like, best built building uh, was in Detroit. Mm. Um, it says the most important surviving 19th century building in industry industry building in Detroit, and then it was sold to the American Bridge Company. Um, and then and the American Bridge Company opened a, or they, they established a town in, in Pennsylvania with the Harmony, Harmony Society, which is based on something called the Divine Economy, which is uh, based on a spiritual... Um, understanding of commerce i guess and um the jp morgan formed u.s steel which was connected to uh which the the american bridge company was bought out by them i guess and then um yeah, blah blah blah. But anyway, that's that's all I got. And then there was um, a place called Mondo Pond that is very special. But and there was a um, 
I wanted to show photos, but my thing's not connected over there. I'm going to edit it into the, when I edit the video. Okay. So people will have already been seeing all of that. Okay. We'll edit this part too. Well, right on. Cool. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Tara. That's beautiful. Thank you guys for listening. Of course. Thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can't stop wonderful research thinking inside. about poor Captain Kid. Yeah, he's only trying to do good, and then I'm with you. Got confused. Well, let's 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 get to the bottom of this. I want to find out. I'm not prejudiced against William Kidd, but uh, I just only know he was a pirate. (laughs) Looking for treasure, pirate. Yeah. Well, actually, let's see. He he was hunting for pirates. And then uh, he was accused of being a pirate himself. And yeah, okay. Well, this checks out. I think Tara, you got to the bottom of it. Maybe we should. Maybe we should feel sa- uh, sorry for William Kidd. Seems like he uh, he originally was against pirates. Maybe there was some politics afoot, and he got you know his rivals snitched on him or something. But uh, okay. Okay. Roman, you uh you said you have something for us. What do you have to present today? <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. I have a few different characters. Uh my little segment today is called Connecticut Characters. Ooh. So, so let me pull this up. Just just some characters, nothing nothing too crazy, not too many big deep weaves, um, but I did say there's some childhood trauma that is that is intertwined in all of this, and I'll get to that story soon enough here. So let's see. Um, let me share my screen. Can you guys see this? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Connecticut characters. Uh, the first character we're going to talk about is um, one of the most famous and renowned characters of the spiritualist movement in the 19th century by the name of Daniel Dunglas whom spelt like home, but it is pronounced whom. Uh, and they called him the man who could fly. That was his, uh, that was his uh, claim to fame sometime between 1830 and 1841. Um, <laughs> Daniel Douglas whom dunk. I have to say his name, right? Sorry. Dung. Liss, not Douglas. <laughs> it's Douglas with a dung. Uh, Hume, his aunt and uncle decided to immigrate from Scotland to America. And where did they land? No other than um, Greenville near Norwich, Connecticut. And he was this sick young kid. Uh, he was always known for his daintiness, his soft, tired looking blue eyes, and he had red hair and freckles. Um, he was from Scotland and, uh, there's a lot of Scottish people coming to Connecticut, I think in the East coast in general, obviously. Um, but there's a, there's a whole movement of Scots moving to Connecticut. Uh, so he, he, he would get made fun of and, and be known as Scotchy by the other students. <laughs> uh, 
he did not he did not join in sports and games with the other boys. He actually preferred to take walks in the local woods with his friend named Edwin. And the two boys would read the Bible and and tell each other stories. And they made a pact stating that if one or the other were to die, they would try to make a contact after their death. So Daniel Douglas um, home, whom we're just going to call Hume from time out from from this time forward. Hume, uh, since he was a baby, was like known to have strange powers. Like his parents just knew that there was something about him. Like he supposedly would rock his own cradle when he was a tiny, tiny baby. Um, that was something that his family had witnessed. And when he was a kid, he just had all these um like heightened moments of intuition uh for a child so um they they wanted him to come and experience the new world and come over to connecticut to make something with himself with his his aunt and uncle um so him and his friend you know they they would they would read the bible and tell each other stories at uh at 13 years old so they were pretty deep in the in the in looking for the truth and the gnosis while the other kids are playing sports and being rambunctious looking for um, home say it again they're looking for home yeah yeah exactly right <laughs> Um, so they moved around a bit, um, but uh, he did always find himself back in Connecticut. And uh, it, it actually turned out that Edwin, his friend that he had when he was younger, uh, he was he was gone. He, he went missing. And according to Lamont, he saw a brightly lit vision of him standing at the foot of the bed, which gave Hume the feeling that his friend was dead. Edwin made three circles in the air before disappearing, and a few days later, a letter arrived stating that Edwin had died of malignant dysentery just three days before Hume's vision. So their their pact they made when they were children apparently uh, came through. The fame that really got Hume uh, noticed in the spiritualist uh, uprising, which is huge, massive, and this uh in the new england like it started obviously with the fox sisters in new york if people aren't familiar are you guys familiar with the spiritualist movement of the 19th century right yeah pretty familiar right it's pretty popular so um the fox sisters were the ones who did the original wrappings in new york but um it started to gain a lot of popularity and a lot to the bourgeoisie class as well. It wasn't really a lot of thing. Um, it wasn't something that was super popular um, for the lay people because you had to actually a lot of times pay to go to seances or seances were held at, at people's homes that had money, um, you know, because they would have these these characters like Daniel um, and the Fox sisters that would actually set these really nice fancy seances up at uh, prestigious homes. They would have different mansions that they would do things in. And, um, you know, some some people might even go as far to say is that there's, you know, extra etheric energy um, in nicer homes that have materials are more conductive 
um, that allow these this different type of like electromagnetic energy or this etheric energy that these clairvoyants are able to tap into. So picking the location of a seance was actually pretty important on that half. Um, so the story of 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 his fame, this famous Connecticut Connecticutian um, spiritualist, uh, when he was eighteen. He went and moved with his friend in Willimantic, Connecticut, and and later Lebanon, Connecticut. Hume held his first seance in March of 1851, which was reported in a Hartford newspaper managed by W.R. Hayden, who wrote that the table moved without anybody touching it and kept moving when Hayden physically tried to stop it. And after the newspaper report, Hume became well-known in New England, traveling around, healing the sick, and communicating with the dead. Although he wrote that he was not prepared for the sudden change in life because of his supposed shyness. Now, none other than Houdini himself has credited Hume as a as a liable source of, of medium uh connection so you know he, he's got houdini on his side even though <laughs> houdini has his haters but uh he was um he was a friend so uh i thought this was kind of interesting um just because it's fun uh a little bit of his personal life hume married two different women in his life and they were both from saint petersburg russia I thought that was really interesting. You know, he's a Scottish man, came to America, became famous um, with his clairvoyant abilities and found himself commonly in France and in Russia. I was like, wow, that's that's kind of interesting. So he, he married twice. One in 1858, he married Alexandria de Kroll, um, a 17 year old daughter of a noble Russian family in St. Petersburg. Uh and his his best man was the writer Alexander Dumas. Um, they had a son, but Alexandria fell ill with tuberculosis and died in 1862. And then he remarried in 1851 or 1871 um, for the second and the last time to Julie de Glumeline a wealthy Russian whom he also met St. Petersburg in the process. He then converted to Greek Orthodox, which I think is like the second largest church, you know, uh, of baptized church in, in, in the country. But it's, that's kind of interesting, right? Like this, this Scottish turned American famed spiritualist, uh, found himself in St. Petersburg marrying two noble, wealthy Russian women from St. Petersburg. What do you guys think about that? Sounds about right with uh, <laughs> Rasputin <laughs> jumping around in Russia. They had a lot of those folks out there. Yeah, and Madame Blavatsky, right? She was yeah. running around the, those, those eastern areas. Actually, he had a connection to the Theosophy uh, Society. He actually got invited to some Theosophical events I was reading. Um, so, yeah, that actually that actually definitely tracks. Um, but but was really cool, uh, I thought, just because I always love, love it when we have uh, homosexual tendencies and overtones. Uh, <laughs> these characters of history, uh, especially when they're documented, it's it's awesome and hilarious. Uh, 
for many reasons. Uh, in 1869, Lord Ardare revealed in his diaries under the title Experiences in Spiritualism with D.D. Hume that he had slept in the same bed with Hume. And many of the diary entries contain erotic homosexual overtones between Adair and Hume. Now, this this was regarding when he went over to France. So after he got famous in Connecticut, New York uh, and New England, he started traveling the world. And where his fame really grew is that he started doing levitation and, and started flying around rooms Um reportedly going out of one window and into another window having many many witnesses and uh the wealthy witnesses wow. at that all all saying that they were literally holding his hands as he started to float up and and have these experiences so he, he started to go and and perform basically for very wealthy rich people he then later died himself. He became ill to tuberculosis, just like his wife before him. Um, but he had actually suffered from this for, for much of his life. They even say when he was a kid, he was pretty sick. And, you know, they just called a lot of things tuberculosis back in the day. Let's be honest. <laughs> There's just a lot of tuberculosis. Um, and and yeah, so um he said his powers were starting to fail and he actually finally came to passing on june 21st 1886 at the age of 53 he was buried in a russian cemetery at the saint germain online in paris so he was connected man uh he was connected he was a famous connecticut uh connecticut character of history Wow, fascinating. I never heard of this flying dung beetle man. <laughs> this is well, this is the where where it first happened. Uh was um in August 1852. Daniel was at the home of a silk manufacturer named Ward at Cheney in Manchester, Connecticut. It was there that he levitated several times during one séance, ascending as far as the ceiling. The following year, he was invited to a theological seminary in Newburgh, New York, and he had an out-of-body experience in which he saw the spirit world and its inhabitants bathed in light and attending invisibly those in this living world. One of his famous um, accounts is being able to, he, he said that he had entities around him that have been around him since he was younger. And basically, when he was around nine years old, he was able to finally break the veil and start talking to these entities that were surrounding him. And then um, then in some of his writings, he basically says what mediumship is, is the ability to tap in to the, the spirit world around you. So we all have entities. Some of us have more than others, you know. Um, it, well, th this is in other people's writings, not necessarily my own words. Even though I, I do, uh, I do kind of poke myself in this, and and I poke in this realm because I, I do feel like there are some some guardian sorts of um, entities that are surround uh, that are around us all the time, either helping us or just just observing. And, and so that he was able to tap into that and he had his common familiars. Um, mm. So this is, um, 
something else I thought was interesting that had to do with his family um, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the Scot- Scottish people that that came to Connecticut in Greenville. The you might have to you might have to say this one for me, Mark. Uh, the Penicuics, the Penicuics, Penicuics. Yeah, the Penicuics. The Pinnacuics were part of a growing community of Scots who had immigrated to America to better their lot. They soon changed their name to Cook. A few years later, Daniel's parents also moved to the United States and took up the residence in southeastern Connecticut. About 1846, the Cooks moved to Troy, New York, another center of papermaking for a brief period, taking Daniel with them. It was there that he had a vision of his friend Edwin in Norwich, who had died three days previously. A few years later, his mother, living in Waterford, predicted her own death in four months. Again, on her death, he had a vision of her. And so I just thought the main part of this I thought was really interesting is that there was a bunch of Scottish families coming over that changed their name to Cook. So it seems like they were all in agreement to kind of like start a new family line in america under the last name cook Hmm. it's just interesting i mean just speaking off of just pure (laughs) speculation but you know we've done um uh some some patreon episodes on like different characters like christopher columbus or um captain cook and like going with like the cc and the and the three three you know that kind of thing and um you know the home of scottish freemasonry and and all of this stuff Uh, uh, it's kind of interesting so uh i just thought thought it was really interesting there's probably something deeper to dig dig here uh right or something yeah 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 something along these lines that's now here's where the Here's where the childhood trauma comes in, y'all. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. I knew this was coming soon. What is this, Roman? Is this a so, doll? Is this the tell me where the bad guy touched me doll? What is this? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's worse than that, man. Like, I was traumatized by these dolls when I was a kid. And I, I don't mean... I. I, I I don't mean not lit- not literally, but but in my dreams every single night for months I was murdered in many ways by Raggedy Ann and Andy. I had these life-size five foot tall Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls that were given to me by my grandmother. And they would sit on the couch outside because I could not let them anywhere near my room. They would always find their, I swear they would always find their eyes, their little button eyes looking back at me. And this house that we lived in, I was saw strange uh, entities outside that I tried to tell my mom about, even though they were pretty benevolent. They were just white ghost type of figures, like seemed like they were doing farm work. But I would have these really intense nightmares where Raggedy Ann and Andy, we'd be in the middle of a white room. It's all white. And I would get murdered. I would get stabbed. They would they would hunt me down in the room. It was just brutal every single night. And so I was looking for some Connecticut history. And then we found ourselves with this character of Johnny Gruel, who his most famous work is, in fact... The Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls, 
who supposedly inspired the Annabelle doll. We're going to go down here. Um, we're going to go specifically to... So there's this there's this occult museum. Oh, there she is. Yeah, look at it. I grew up with these dolls too, Romy. My sister had these same exact dolls. They were terrifying, man. Oh, yeah, you guys I had are one a bunch. Too. Oh, don't you was... hold on. Do you, are you scared they used of them? to sit on top of her strawberry shortcake toy <laughs> containers staring at me, dude? Oh. Identical. Oh man, oh. this is crazy. My mom had some too, and I was never scared of them. They were just in stupid dolls in the in my parents' bedroom that I couldn't play with. <laughs> Yeah, I had a bunch in my closet that would stare at me too while I was sleeping when I was little. Oh my gosh! But they, yeah, they didn't bother me then. Huh? Learning a lot about the three of you today. I'm surprised. Well, well look at this. Look where we found ourselves. Someone else of the Cook family. Uh, apparently, uh, Father Cook was to perform an exorcism on the apartment to cleanse the home. He also blessed the individuals that were there in attendance. <laughs> um, but yeah, so back to back to uh, um, Johnny Gruel, the, the guy who created them. This is kind of the story, and it's really sad um, of how this happened. Um, but Gruel gave his daughter, Marcella, a dusty, faceless rag doll, which he found in the attic. He drew a face on the doll and named her Raggedy Ann. Marcella played with the doll so much. Gruel figured other children would like a doll too. Gruel's Raggedy Ann doll, U.S. patent D47789, was dated September 7th, 1915. <laughs> In 1918, the P.F. Volland Company uh, published Raggedy Ann stories. Gruel then created a series of popular Raggedy Ann books and dolls. But in 1921, Johnny Gruel's eight-year-old daughter was vaccinated in school without her parents' permission. Between the time oh. that she became ill from the vaccination and her death only a few months later, her body was completely limp like a rag doll. It was this sick vaccine-injured child that inspired Gruel to create the Raggedy Ann doll. What? Um, oh, I, I have more on that somewhere too i hope i put that slide in here that explains oh, no. why we're all subconsciously scared of raggedy ann well the, the, the story is you know it's it's intriguing right like he uh he goes to the attic and he was looking around and he finds this faceless doll um and then he puts a face on the doll now he literally gave that doll a face like that is so the the voodoo doll right or whatever that that story is not just um a part of like american uh voodoo it, it also is old tradition in africa but was also taken up uh, famously renaissance period in the renaissance magic and they have these dolls that were used um to put curses on people to literally in, induce magical uh, 
magical workings. So whether or not it was a love spell, whether or not it was an illness spell, dolls have been used for this for a very long time. So it is kind of whether he did it intentionally or not. Obviously, I don't think he tried to intentionally kill his daughter by any means. But, you know, um, it's it's kind of. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because it's like this doll, this this doll that was in his attic at his mother's house, you know, that happened to be faceless. And then he gives it the face. He gives it he gives it the animation. Um, and then it's and, you know, I was reading some articles where they were That's going funny. as far to speculate that the <laughs> that the doll itself is what kind of like sparked and took the life out of his daughter and then they swapped spaces and that's why the annabelle doll is like this famous haunted doll that lives in this occult museum uh that's permanently closed down unfortunately but in in eastern connecticut yikes well yeah thanks roman we're all collectively <laughs> traumatized now Oh, I got more. I got Vaccine more for you guys. Now. Let's hear it. The New England vampire pa vampire panic. So look at this yeah. theme that we find ourselves in. Remember how I said they just called everything tuberculosis back in the day? Um, well, this 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 time this time period that was also the spiritualist movement that was happening the same time when um, you know it was it was. They were saying that, you know, people could speak to to ghosts and there was a lot of this supernatural supernatural workings happening. Right. Like then you also had like the Salem witch trials that were going on and all of this stuff. Um, so New England mm -hmm. and Rhode Island, I think, had the highest per uh, capita of of the type of consumption that people were considering vampiric. So the new New England vampire panic, um, tuberculosis was known as consumption at the time, as it appeared to consume an infected person's body. It is now known to be a bacterial disease, but the cause was unknown until the late 19th century. The infection spreads easily among a family. Thus, when a one family member died of consumption, other members were often infected and gradually lost their health. People believed that this was due to the deceased tuberculosis, tuberculosis sufferer draining the life from the other family members. The belief that consumption was spread in this way was widely held in New England and in Europe. In an attempt to protect the survivors and ward off the effects of consumption, bodies of those who had died from the disease were exhumed and examined. The corpse was the corpse was deemed to be feeding on the living if it was determined to be unusually fresh, especially if the heart or other organs contained liquid blood. After the culprit was identified, there were a number of proposed ways to stop the attacks. The most benign of these was to simply burn the body turn a body over in its grave. In other cases, families would burn the fresh organs and rebury the body. Occasionally, the body would be decapitated. Affected family members would also inhale smoke from the burned organs and consume the ashes in a further attempt to cure the consumption. So one of the most famous accounts of these new england vampires is this character john barber who 
was in Griswold, New London County, Connecticut. In 1990, children playing in a gravel pit unearthed human skulls, leading to the discovery of an old farm burial ground that had belonged to the Walton family. Most of the skeletons were unremarkable, but one was in a coffin marked with JB-55 and tacks on the lid. The skeleton appeared to have been uh, have been exhumed and reburied approximately five years after its death, with its head and femurs removed and placed and crossbones. The rib cage had been broken open, presumably to remove the heart. Later, DNA suggested that the skeleton was that of farmer John Barber. With the tax on the coffin lid, his initials and the age of death. A nearby coffin was similarly labeled NB13, likely his son, Nathan Barber, who died in 1826 around the age of 13. This identity was confirmed through further DNA research by Parabin Nanolabs in 2022. So... Just last year, we had a multi, we had a couple century long follow up and investigation of this old vampire case to say, yep, that's the barbers, uh, these rural Connecticut farmers that were suffering from tuberculosis and consumption. Now, John Barber's case, uh, his entire family had suffered from tuberculosis, but some, some others say that his sons were also very vampiric in the sense that they were literally consuming blood. And that's why John Barber was held at such high regard when the, we don't know who came and dug up his body and placed his skull and crossbones or skull and femurs in that way, in that shape. But somebody did it um, because they firmly believed that he actually suffered from true vampirism. Now, here's another really famous Connecticut case of vampirism. It's called the Jewett City Vampires. The Jewett City Vampires were thought to be the case, the cause of an incident surrounding the Ray family, a large family, farming family of Griswold, Connecticut in the late 1840s and 50s, who upon the death of multiple family members concluded that they were plagued by vampires and in 1854 disinterred the dead relatives and body and burned the bodies to protect themselves from the undead. Sometime in the mid 19th century, one member of the Ray family had contracted tuberculosis, and the first fatality came with the death of the 24-year-old Lumel Ray in 1845. Shortly after Lumel Ray's father, Henry B. Ray, died in 1851. Two years later, 26-year-old Alicia Ray, Lumel's brother, died in 1853. One year after that, 1854, Henry Ray, Henry B.'s Ray, eldest son, and Lumel and Alicia's brother died from the disease. The body with the skull and crossbones found in a coffin with the markings JB-55 had characteristics consistent with the death from tuberculosis, with the same signs appearing on the two surrounding bodies, all presumably buried in the 1790s. JB-55 is the only visual confirmable practice of the bone disruption that the Ray family was supposed to have used to keep the dead family members dead. Another common method was to ensure the dead family members remained that way was to cut out the heart of the deceased member and to burn it to cure the rest of the family and to put the spirit at rest. The Ray family died of tuberculosis, then known as consumption, over a period of nine years. 
So just, I don't know if it's like super spiritual uh, conspiracy mixed with a bacterial infection that you gives you thirst for human blood. <laughs> that's what we're experiencing um, here. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, I think there's some reality to some of this stuff. I found a book about uh, the basis for the story Dracula. And it connects to some really weird stuff, but all of that didn't happen in Connecticut. It seems that's a, just an immigrant, uh, like many other uh, weird things that have mm -hmm. crossed the Atlantic Oceans. You know, vampires <laughs> are, are there. Absolutely, the yeah. No, I mean, over in Europe, this the belief of vampires was very, very real. Mm. So, you know, it was only a matter of time. Um, but yeah, one more, just one more time. We'll go over a little bit of this, this JB 55. He was known as the Griswold vampire and archeologist originally unearthed the supposed vampires remains in 1990 in 2019 forensic scientists extracted his DNA and ran it through an online genealogical database, determining that JB 55 was the man, a man named John Barber, a poor farmer who likely died of tuberculosis. The nickname JB 55 was based on the epitaph spelled out on his coffin in brass tacks, denoting his initials and age of death. So the Griswold vampire, here you go. Here you have it. More skull and crossbones symbology in the home of skull and crossbones. Yale secret societies, right? You know, here you go. Just, I don't know what it is. I tried to find other, um, burial sites that had this type of specific um like kind of ritual done with it but i this this one came up john barber kept coming up like there's hundreds of articles on this the, the skull and crossbones like the way it's laid out so when you have hundreds of articles that are just flash lining that you know you kind of get this like feeling that it's like meant to be seen um mm. yeah well one thing yeah. that we found in a book that tara and i picked up uh, <clears throat> last year is that that was a popular um symbol in christian sort of grave making where they would create gravestones they would put the death's head on top of the gravestone as like a symbol of an angelic presence or maybe even to ward off uh, something but yeah i think that that also could be intended so that the vampire doesn't reincarnate and if he does mm -hmm. uh, his legs are all screwed up so he can't go anywhere yeah yeah exactly it was supposed to be like dismembering the body i think in any way they said like flipping it upside down mm. um ripping the organs out and burning them like just kind of moving it around however is supposed to deter the spirit from coming back or for them to um Why? yeah them to them to do it so that's kind of the end of my slides i i had this really sweet character who i didn't have enough time to pull any any goodness up on uh, and post them here for everybody. But if you guys want to look into it, uh, her name is Isabella Beecher Hooker. She was a very famous uh, um, feminist activist of Connecticut history, and she helped move a lot of the Women's Suffrage Act um, 
and was a part of the spiritualist community. She was a, uh, a clairvoyant and a psychic as well as a very, very strong woman and a leader uh, in the suffrage movement. And uh, yeah, it was kicking ass and taking names. And so maybe we'll get into her a little bit next time, though. Right on. Cool. Well, we're at uh, about the halfway point here. Roman, that was great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thanks for digging all that up. Very cool. Uh, I heard about that vampire uh, from Griswold on a podcast called Lore like three years ago. And I was like, Mm -hmm. whoa, a story about Connecticut. That's really cool. You brought that back uh, into my memory. But uh, that vampire... Well, some boys found like a weird grave in Griswold, Connecticut, which that's all the way on the eastern half of Connecticut, like the Jewett City and and Griswold. That's all near Rhode Island, uh, not quite near New Haven. But um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's weird because the kids found like some, you know, unmarked grave and then they had like the police look into it and they found out it was not, you know, anybody that was murdered anytime recently. It wasn't like some crime scene. It was like an ancient archaeological find, basically. Not ancient, but, you know, a couple hundred, if you can consider a couple hundred years ancient. Uh, With a very rich story behind it, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, great job, Roman. If anybody's interested... uh, that lore podcast does a great job of telling that story uh, in detail mm-hmm. too. So, but we have uh, ourselves here at the halfway point. I need to get some more water in my glass here. You guys want to take a quick break and come back, and we'll have uh, Chad yeah. break down what he's ready to break down. We're back. Here we are. Esoteric America, part two of episode 19, New Haven, Connecticut, and the greater Connecticut area. And uh, we just heard from Tara and then Roman. Now we're going to hear from Chad. What do you got for us this week, Chad? Something about uh, the Voynich manuscript, I hear. That's exciting. That connects to what I'm about to present after you're done. Awesome. Yeah, I got a couple different things. We look at some uh, airships, some, uh, let's see what else I got here. I got some airships, and we're going to get into a little bit of the Voynich Manuscript, and if we have time, the melon heads. Let me get my screen share going here real quick. Sorry, I'm still trying to get my screen to share.
having some technical difficulties here. Just a sec. We got time. No worries. Okay, getting there. Okay, let me know when you guys see it here. Oh yeah, like this. Okay. Okay, so we're gonna start off with extension balloons and airships here in Connecticut, and in particular in New Haven. And we'll start off in the late 1700s, 1785. And this is the time of people aren't going up in balloons yet. They're just trying to see how big of balloons they can fill up and how high they can get these balloons to go. So one of the first balloon experiments in Connecticut took place in the spring of 1785 when Josiah Meggs, who was a former tutor at Yale and the editor of the New Haven Gazette, he constructed and flew several unmanned balloons above the town green here in New Haven. So according to the diary of the Yale president, Ezra Stiles, the third balloon that Meg sent aloft ascended three times higher than the earlier ones. And this balloon was described as having been spherical, 11 feet in diameter, and decorated with the figure of an angel in flight, holding a trumpet in one hand and the flag of the United States in the other. And whether by accident or as a result of gunfire from the local militia, the balloon exploded in midair, quote, being converted into a pyramid of flame at its greatest height that became a grand and pleasing object to the spectators. So I just thought it was kind of symbolic that this first balloon over the green blew up into what they describe as a pyramid of fire. You know, it's... <laughs> Very symbolic, you know, especially over the the green here. And with so the angel, one, one of the first. Too. Yeah, exactly. Wrong with the angel with the trumpet exploding into the pyramid of fire. And there's the. So that was one of the first experiments. Go ahead, Tara. There was all the the there's the bodies underneath the green too, so that's interesting. Exactly. The angel. Yeah, super symbolic, you know, ceremonial, whether it was, yeah. you know, purposeful or an accident. And I don't know what they're talking about, a, you know, the militia possibly shooting it down by accident. I'm not sure how that happens exactly. But <laughs> yeah, you, know, you have a huge what... scientific feat in the, mil in the military. It's just like, <laughs> you know what? Oh, my God, it's an angel. Get it now. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, I just thought it was pretty symbolic. We had a pyramid of fire over the green, you know, in the late 1700s. Uh, so we'll move up the supposed timeline a little bit to the mid-1850s. And this is when now people are trying to go up on these balloons and do different tricks hanging from the balloons and see how high they can go and how far they can go. So by the 1850s, these man ballooned extensions had become somewhat common amusement as the aeronauts, as the balloonists were called, they'd make these untethered extensions at circuit events and 4th of July celebrations around the country. And one of these balloonists who came to be known far and wide for his extensions was Silas Brooks, a Plymouth native who began his career 
working for Connecticut's preeminent showman, P.T. Barnum. So we do have a P.T. Barnum connection here. So from hoaxer to aeronaut. So Barnum used Brooks to create one of his more popular hoaxes. A band of so-called Druid musicians purported to be dressed in ancient ceremonial garb, playing authentic Druid musical instruments. Brooks fashioned the odd-looking horn-like instruments in a metal shop in Bridgeport. He then trained the five-man band, most of whom were German immigrants, who spoke little English in secret in a hotel room in Bristol. The band debuted in 1849 and played for months to sell out crowds at Barnum's American Museum in the New York City. After touring with the band for several years, Brooks found his true calling. He formed a circus troupe in Cleveland that included aeronaut and balloon extensions as part of each performance. When his balloonist took ill one day, Brooks made the extension in his place. He never looked back. Whoa. He's kept floating? Just kept floating. So now he decides he's going to become what they call aeronauts or a balloon extensionist. So during a career that spanned 40 years as an aeronaut, Brooks made nearly 200 balloon extensions, many in his home state of Connecticut. At one event held at Cherry Hill Park in Collinsville on July 4th, 1884, Brooks filled his balloon with hydrogen gas manufactured on the premises and one of the greatest experiments ever witnessed. He did this by combining a large vats of 5,000 gallons of water, 2,400 pounds of sulfuric acid, and 2,000 pounds of iron turnings with a keen sense of the public's endless appetite for carnival stunts. (laughs) Brooks took with him on that flight a small dog wearing a parachute. And then he dropped the dog from the balloon at a height of several thousand feet. (laughs) True showman. True showman. I found a couple pictures here. Oh, well, the dog did make it. The dog did make it. And coincidentally, it happened Good. when I was doing this research. There's a movie called The Aeronauts. So I watched this movie just to see what the show showed. It is a movie, but the first depiction in the movie showed this girl going up, and the first thing she did was drop a dog from her basket. So I'm pretty sure they got that you know, scene from Silas Brooks here. Give us real quick. Okay, so 5,000 gallons of water. Okay, I'm just going to, dude, that's way more than 5,000 pounds. Like, that's so heavy. Like, that's with all that. You know how much a five gallon bucket of water weighs, Romy? I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. So heavy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Like, these are some super powerful balloons. Yeah, well, I mean, gotta be a powerful here you man can see them. They, they pretty navigate that. And ballsy, brave, crazy, you know. I don't, Balloons you'd have to be crazy. They're balls. getting these baskets and just start, yeah, getting the basket, and the baskets are full of sandbags, and you just start dropping sandbags. The more sandbags you drop, the higher you go. Then when it's time to come down, you just release the air in the balloon. You know, these guys are this one guy like crouching. You see him like in between the blue suit. Yeah, that guy just. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what what he's doing back there. But so that was the time of balloon extensions. We'll move up the timeline again. Now we're going to get to the time of dridgeables. And this is in 
the late 1800s. Now we're talking 18, in this case, 1878. And a Connecticut inventor, Charles F. Richel of Bridgeport, he obtained a patent for a dirigible of his own unique design. The Richel flying machine, as it was called, consisted of a cylindrical gas bag, 12 feet in diameter, 24 feet in length, made of black silk, and it featured a metal frame made of brass tubing, which hung below the glass container and provided seating for the pilot. And once aloft, the pilot propelled the gas-filled airship forward by turning a hand crank that spun the ship's rotating propeller. The pilot could then steer his course using foot pedals that allowed him to turn a brass rudder at the front of the airship. So wow. here's the schematics for the Charles Richel's flying machine, 1878. And this wasn't the only thing he invented. He also invented the funhouse mirror. Whoa. Thought that was kind of interesting. We're, uh, we're all into the mirrors and the, you know. But according to Charles Richel, he was the inventor at that time of the only flying machine on earth, you know. So on June 12th, 1878, he brought his airship to Hartford, where a lightweight pilot named Mark Quinlan operated the hand-powered aircraft. And before a crowd of amazed spectators, who each paid 15 cents, Quinlan took off from a ball field behind the Colt Armory. He sailed over the armory, turned out over the Connecticut River, and then returned to the ball field, where he landed safely and shook Richel's hand after what had been the first controlled flight of a dirigible in the U.S. Now, I want to point out what I have noticed, though, as I'm doing this research, in the 1800s, when we're going city to city, everybody is claiming they're the first. <laughs> I'm not sure... You know, if they really thought they were the first, because, you know, it was, only, it was time of newspapers and horse and buggy. Had they not read the newspapers from other states across the country? Possible. But everybody was claiming they're the first. So there were other guys at the same, around the same time, claiming they were the first, too. Now, I want to take a little brief journey. This is 20 years later. And something comes up called the Great Airship Mystery. And across the country, these airships start to be seen everywhere. But none of the inventors are taking credit for them. In a couple case, there's one case where in Sacramento where a lawyer said he had an inventor and he had some airships, but you know, proof never came to fruition. But these airships began crossing the country. And they started on a particular date in in Sacramento, California, is where they started, right over the Capitol. And you can see here, this attorney here says he has a client, and his client has several airships, and they're flying them around. And all these different kinds of airships and dirigibles were being seen. Some look like birds. Some were look like balloons with carriages below them. I mean, think of, think of steampunk, like, all different versions of these airships were turning up in newspaper reports. So I just want to read you a couple of these reports on how insane these reports are. Because some of them, you think these could have been inventor types. Others, you're like, were these, you know, 
other worldly people come in here. Others, you're like, are they time travelers? Some of them just don't Dimension make sense. Travelers. So I'm just going to read some of them. Yeah. And there's always those theories, you know, if there was time travel and you're going to come back to a certain time, would you try to use a ship or whatever that fit in with that time? So that's kind of one of the theories. But I'm just going to read some of the articles. An article from the Albion Weekly News reported two witnesses saw an airship crash just inches from where they were standing. The airship suddenly disappeared with a man standing where the vessel had been. The airship pilot showed the men a small device that supposedly enabled him to shrink the airship small enough to store the vessel in his pocket. Okay, now we'll move April 10th, 1897, the St. Louis Dispatch. They published a story reporting that the one W.H. Hopkins encountered a grounded airship about 20 feet in length, 8 feet in diameter, near the outskirts of Springfield, Missouri. The vehicle was apparently propelled by three large propellers, crewed by a beautiful nude woman and a bearded man, also nude. Hopkins attempted with some difficulty to communicate with the crew in order to ascertain their origins. Eventually, they understood what Hopkins was asking of them. They both pointed to the sky and uttered something that sounded like the word Mars. <laughs> April 16th, 1897. Story published in Table Rock Argus claims that a group of anonymous but reliable witnesses seen an airship sailing overhead. The craft had many passengers. The witnesses claimed that among these passengers was a woman tied to a chair, a woman attending her, and a man with a pistol guarding their apparent prisoner. Before their witness thought to contact the authorities, the airship was already gone. I mean, this almost sounds like some weird abduction. I don't know what what you call it. So from one more account from Texas, three men report an encounter with an airship with five peculiar dressed men who ascertained they were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. And they had learned English from the 1553 North Pole Expedition led by Hugh Willoughby. Whoa. So, as you can see, these encounters are weird. You know, it's hard to make sense of them. But, you know, when you research these, the newspaper articles, they're going, the ships seem to be going from town to town, from month to month in a, a you know, a, a fashion that makes sense. Now, after this 1896, and then the spring of 1897, the last report, and I'm going through these because this will all connect back to Connecticut. So just bear with me here. The last report was an airship which was flying over a Texas town named Aurora, Texas, flew into town, and crashed into a Judge Proctor's windmill. And a lot of this research was done by a researcher, Jim Mars, who had his boots on the ground, good old Texas boy. And supposedly... The occupant of this airship was buried in this cemetery here in Aurora. And this is a Freemasonic cemetery. And Jim Mars been to the cemetery, and there used to actually be a little gravestone in the cemetery. And according to newspaper reports, the guys who discovered the airship supposedly took the small occupant of the airship, buried him in the cemetery in the 1800s, and put a little headstone there 
and right outside the cemetery, you know, I'll, wow. I'll read the plaque that sits outside the cemetery. Uh, the oldest known graves here from the early 1860s. Uh, veterans from Mississippi donated this three-acre site. Uh, this newly formed Aurora Lodge, 1877. Many years, this community burial ground was known as a Masonic Cemetery. Uh their family was buried here in epidemic struck the village in 1891 and added hundreds of the graves to the plot called spotted fever now we'll move down the plaque a little farther located in the rural cemetery is the gravestone of the infant nellis burris which is often quoted the epitaph as i was so soon done i don't know why i was begun and this site is also well known because of the legend that a spaceship crashed nearby in 1897 and the pilot killed on the crash was buried here. Wow. So even the, the plaques, you know, points to the possibility that an airship crashed and a pilot may have been buried here. So this story is way deeper. I'm just brushing the surface, but for you'll see why in a few minutes the whole... This whole mysterious airships, 1897, could they have been elite inventors? You know, could they have been extraterrestrial interdimensional travelers using ships that fit the time period? Time travelers, you know, could have been any of them. But I just want you to remember that it was in Aurora, Texas, that this last airship mystery, that last airship crashed, because it's going to connect back in just a minute. So we'll go back to Connecticut. There was no more airships really seen for a decade or a decade or so. Then all of a sudden, in Connecticut, they a new company pops up, and they're going to start creating airships and dirigibles for public use. And the first one was the Aerial Construction Company of Hartford in 1911, and they were established in September of 1911. Kind of ironic numbers there. For the purpose of building commercial airships of German, there's German again, German design that could carry passengers. And their business office, coincidentally, was located off 212 Asylum Street. <laughs> now, the first U.S. Navy dirigible, five years later, was manufactured by a new company. That company was turned into a new company that was opened in New Haven, Connecticut. And they, on display that drew great interest was a model of a dirigible airship constructed by the company. And it was the first dirigible ever built in particular for the Army. So here's a picture of it. It's the first dirigible balloon for the use of the United States Navy completed by the Connecticut Aircraft Company in New Haven. And they shipped it down to Pensacola, Florida and tested it out. And over the years, they began to build lots of these. They see during their tenure in business, the Connecticut company built 177 of these airships or balloons of different kinds. And in 1921, this company was actually acquired by what they call the Delaware Corporation. And they continued to produce these digital airships under that name. So here's just some articles about the Delaware Corporations, and they're still located out of New Haven. Now, the Delaware Corporation's big idea 
was they were going to take all this technology and create a transit between New York and Chicago and start basically this tourist tourist thing. Well, what I'd like to point out is with all of this technology, they've came up with this point, they decide to name this ship that they're going to use the Aurora. The same location as the mysterious mm. airships crashed two decades earlier. So surely, at minimum, they at least knew of the great airship mystery of the crash at Aurora. At minimum. If we want to really mm -hmm. speculate, we could start think start thinking, you know, was there any type of technology there at Aurora that, you know, was moved forward into these airships and they had had the gall to name it the Aurora. You know, most likely not, but at minimum. At minimum, they knew about that last crashed airship in Aurora, Texas. So that's 1924. I mean, by the way, this never came into fruition. This was their plans, but it never came into fruition, mainly due to the tragedy the of the Hindenburg. Well, the Great Depression, too, but the Hindenburg crashed a couple years later, and that, you know, nobody was trying to take tours and flights on the airships anymore. But before it crashed, there's a Connecticut, Connecticut connection to the Hindenburg, another German connection I was talking about. Can I just say, and too, for a couple, it's interesting to me that um, it's named Aurora because Aurora was one of the first people that we interviewed and she called herself a um a, a walk-in or a time traveler yeah a woman we interviewed Whoa. who's named aurora oh. sent us on this whole journey yeah i mentioned that in the last episode yeah oh oh yeah yeah okay yeah right aurora the time traveler that's yeah that's kind of crazy so, see, I mentioned the German connection, and the Hindenburg was another German connection. It, before the crash, it would fly across over here to the United States every, every summer, and it would take tours up and down the East Coast, but it would take the majority of them over the New England and New York area. And the last flight, the last flight of the fall before it crashed was actually called the millionaire's flight. And I like to bring this up. It's just kind of a, a weird piece of history. I never heard about till I started researching this. And it was basically, they were called it the New England foliage excursion. And it was the, the Hindenburg company used it to promote all these different American companies. So on it, on, I'll read what I got wrote here. On that foggy fall morning in 1936, the Hindenburg lifted off from Lakehurst at 6.57 to the shouts of skiff hock or up ship. Dr. Hugo Eckner, head of the DZR and the former commander of the Gaff Zeppelin, was in control and on board were more than 70 American dignitaries. The passenger list, it read like a who's who for 1936. And it 
led the press to refer to this as the millionaire's flight. And those on board included Nelson Rockefeller, the 28-year-old New York financer, Winthrop Aldrich, chairman of the board of Chase, Paul Litchfield, president of Goodyear Tire, Byron Foy, an auto, auto executive for Chrysler Corp., Juan Tripp, founder of Pan American World Airways, Eddie Rickenbacker, World One Flying Ace, director of Eastern Airlines, three admirals, a general, assorted government officials, and a cater of newspaper and magazine correspondents. So they knew that this flight would get huge attention, you know, obviously. So here, here's the flight route. started in New York. Sounds like the Titanic. Flew up to... <laughs> way too close to the Titanic. <laughs> and it flew up to New York, up from New York to Boston, through Connecticut, over Hartford, got to Boston, flew back down south through New London, through New Haven, through Bridgeport, back down through New Jersey and back to New York. This one to show you this. This is one of the souvenirs that everybody on board got was this ashtray with uh, this blimp filled with with uh, diesel gas. <laughs> my my mm. wife asked me, "Isn't that kind of kind of ironic? What you know, you're on this flammable blimp, and they got ashtrays with little glass blimps filled with gas. What if it drops or breaks? Like I don't know. It's, I don't know. Kind of kind of." <laughs> What if that ash, kind of cool, kind of weird. What if the cherry of the cigar gets a little too close to that glass? I mean, is the whole thing going to explode? <laughs> that would be terrible. What a terrible know. design for ashtray. <laughs> that's what I was, that's what she was, yeah, it's like, what if your cigar sitting in it and it falls on the floor? <laughs> like, I don't know, man. It's basically a Molotov cocktail was, trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, maybe they were trying to get yeah. people to, uh, to accidentally, you know, blow, <laughs> blow up the ship, you know, cause a little. Uh... Well, yeah. Whoever that's kind of why that I showed ashtray. the ashtray because, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's um, for Romy show. mentioned that Titanic, you know. <laughs> yeah. But so that, that, that'd be a collector's item to have today for sure. So they made their trip and flew over Hartford. And they said it flew so low over the Capitol building, they thought it was going to hit the steeple. Like, I mean, they were, and it was a big deal. So people were coming out all over town. Here's pictures of it flying over Waterbury. And this was the last flight. After this flight, it flew, flew back across the ocean for the fall. And the next spring, it flew. On the very first flight, flying back across the ocean to land in New Jersey, you know, we all know what happened upon landing. So for all intents and purposes, that was the last flight. And with the Hindenburg going down, all the, the hopes and the dreams of the airships, you know, kind of went up in smoke. And from well, that point on, they focused on, you know, the airplanes. Well, I think we figured it out. Somebody left one of those damn ashtrays from the millionaire's flight on the Hindenburg, <laughs> and here we go. Yeah, I I heard people damn. speculate uh, that maybe this was an attempt from the oil industry to take down what would essentially be a more renewable 
form of travel as far as energy resources go. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe this was planned. Well, That's yeah. why all those auto guys were all on the flight, the, the on the last uh, flight. That, like, hey, yeah. let's soak this in while it's still here. going to say, if you look at that who's who's list that was on that last flight, every one of those guys would have became a much wealthier person after, you know, the destruction of the Hindenburg. You had the Goodyear rubber tires. That like you know all all of those guys would have made more money without this technology, coincidentally or not. So that was the early aviation history of Connecticut and the airships, and you know once we go past that, we're into the airplanes. But we're gonna leave that for another day. Wow, great job, man! That was awesome. Wow, yeah, beautiful. Well, maybe they kind of totally made that because that existed before maybe they all got rich afterwards because that all existed before who knows yep absolutely go with that for sure yep it's it's a weird i I want i'm gonna do some more research into the whole airships and the airship mystery because this is a real you know a two-week scratch in the surface but there's a lot to it there's a lot behind the scenes i think that we could uncover if we dug into it a little bit. Mm. But so I'm gonna to- totally change it up a little bit and go from yeah. airships to an ancient manuscript. And the way the ancient manuscript fits in is this is the Voynich manuscript, and it's held at the rare manuscript building in at Yale. So that's how this fits in. Now, have you guys? I assume, Mark, you've heard of the Voynich Manuscript and Tara? Romeo, yeah. are you familiar with it? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, it's a, an, an amazing awesome. alchemical awesome. text of antiquity. Okay, great. All right. So I won't go into a ton of detail here than describing the history of it, other than it's a ancient text, and it's held at Yale, and it's pretty much undeciphered, undecoded. And at this point, they don't believe it's a hoax. And it has been carbon dated to the early 1400s, 1404 to 1438. So they do know it was manufactured at that time. But the big mystery is what's in it. The language is pretty much undeciphered. The images don't make a lot of sense. I'll show you in a few minutes. They show all kinds of plants that don't make sense. They show people doing things that don't make sense. And they show astrological images that don't necessarily make sense. So, like I said, the manuscript has never demonstrably been deciphered. And the many hypotheses proposed over the last hundred years have been independently verified and the mystery and its meaning and origin has excited the popular imagination, making it subject to study and speculation for literally for hundreds of years now. And there there was speculation at points could have something to do with Bacon or D or even Edward Kelly. And they, at one point, they believed D, at least at minimum, may have held possession of it, and it changed hands over the years. Like I said, I'm not going to get into the whole history of it. And in the early 1900s, it ended up in the hands 
of Wilfred Voynich, hence the name the Voynich Manuscript. After Voynich passed away, it eventually got donated to the Yale Bianchi Museum. So I want to show you some of the pictures and why they say it's never been decoded and doesn't make sense. Here's some of the plant life, and you'll see, you know, people have spent years trying to identify these plants. And so far, as far as I know, most of these plants have, haven't been identified. They found a, one or two that they say look familiar in South America, but there's only one that I believe has been identified. But if you look close at some of these, like look at this one on the left. It's a plant up top and literally is like an animal on the bottom. And this one on the right, I'm going to call this one identified. But I'll get back to that one in just a few minutes. But I'm just showing you the book itself has three main components. Plant life, then it has people doing strange things. And more times than not, they are feminine, divine feminines. And you'll see these ladies going through, I will try to describe them as tubes, maybe plant veins or vines, maybe portals, maybe plant portals. I'm not sure, but very unusual. I definitely recommend people to try to look at these images because they're kind of hard to describe, but you'll have these ladies taking baths and green like maybe slime or, tubes <laughs> yeah yeah well absolutely and that's a could a hundred percent be what we're looking at in one way a hundred percent yeah hmm <clears throat> i mean very unusual and, Go ahead. Yeah, and i don't know coming through tubes going over rainbows wow. i mean just hmm. very, very hmm. original you know, I mean, here you have one. You have this ram in the middle of this circle. With all these people coming out of tubes. I'll call them tubes, portals. And every one of them are holding stars. So are they star tubes or star portals? I'm getting some big Mario vibes going on here. <laughs> so you have... <laughs> Have you seen Donnie Darko too? Oh as yeah, as well or number yeah. two? Yeah, <laughs> or as well, like the. Oh yes, because well, they did make a Donnie Darko too, Sarah Darko, and it's terrible. Huh. So, just wanted to confirm that. That's funny. Talking about Sarah Darko. That's Please don't let anybody ever watch it. Well, but yeah, no, definitely Donnie Darko too. <laughs> as well. The Damn tubes. It. The tubes. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah, right. there's tubes in that that movie that maybe they're um, yeah, and, alluding to some sort of dimensional travel again. That's what I would. That's what I would go with, Tara. I mean, the one thing we can say about you know looking at these tubes is they are some sort of transportational device. They're you know emerging from these tubes most likely. So. We had the the plant life, the people doing crazy stuff, and the other pages are almost all astrological star charts. And, you know, you see something like this. Remember, this is the early 1400s. They, they shouldn't have this view or this perspective necessarily at that time, but they did. 
they had the perspective, it almost looks like a spiral galaxy. I mean, it looks exactly like a spiral galaxy. Then you have other, you know, all these astrological. This one's a, when I see a star in the middle of this gate, you know, it looks like a stargate, a portal. Now, I'm going to get into a friend of mine's research because I like to talk about this because she was there. She had her hands on it. And this was a fellow researcher by the name of Hillary Ramo. And unfortunately, Hillary's no longer with us. She passed last year, unfortunately, to cancer. But she was ahead of her time. And she did some absolutely amazing research. And she was kind enough to share this research with me in particular almost a decade ago now. So I want to get into a little her feelings on after touching this book and being there, what she came up with. And she was smart enough not to, she knew she was going to go and visit the library and see the manuscript. So she was smart enough not to pollute herself with a lot of research into it prior to going there. So she went there with an open mind. And on a side note, Hillary was psychic and intuitive. And she really was. She she was the one who got me to believe in psychic. She told me some stuff. She really was. Let me just tell you that. She, she was beyond an intuitive. So Hillary went there. And she wrote an article afterwards. And you can find this online still. And it's called The Voynich Reveals Star Maps of Plant Origins, Cannabis from Sirius. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts from her article. Are you serious? Take a look at the word cannabis. Ever wonder what it means? Cannabis is a Greek word, though its root is African. In Greek, canna means canine or dog, and bis or by is the number two. So cannabis is the two-dog plant. That in itself is interesting to me, but the pot thickens. There is a cannabis-loving tribe in Mali, West Africa, called the Dogon tribe. Now, like I was saying, this is the one plant in this book I think is identified. Now, according to Hillary, if the Dogons were correct, and all of their other knowledge about Sirius which I assume we all know that the Dogon tribe was ahead of their time knowing about Sirius A, B, and C before modern technology. So if the Dogon were correct in all their other knowledge about Sirius, why would they not be dead on with their claims of cannabis being from Sirius? It is, after all, named after that two-dog star. And in the manuscript, there are images of dogs and stars. So, according to Hillary, what was written in this book was vital information, information that showed a tracking of origin, sources for certain power plants. Where did they come from? Looking at, I mean, and I, 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 like everybody who's only listening, please try to look at the pictures, even if you just go online and Google Voynich Manuscript, because the images really help to make the story here. That's super fascinating. Acting dude. like symbols. Wow. I'm, yeah, it, it is too. Now. And I, I wish this was I wish this was my research, you know, but this was Hillary this getting this intuitive feel and you know, going through this. And 
She said that acting like symbols within people's mind, opening up knowledge and activating memories, the images invoked the memory associated with the star system, and that aspect would connect us to multidimensionality. The star charts in the Vanyach clearly show very specific star alignments. One stood out clearer than others, the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. I believe that the star origin That's... of the power plants used in this book, the Pleiades, yeah. I believe the star origin of the power plants used in this book are known to the indigenous people of this planet. You match the plant to the star system it represents, and it's from, and it connects one to when ingested, or perhaps even tells the trail of humanity throughout the ages. It is the coded truth. It shows us the combinations or constellations that we can trace for multi-dimensional multi reasons. Wow. So, yeah, this is, this is next level. She was so ahead of her time. So if plants really do open up the portals, if they truly align our bodies and minds with the right frequency to see them, to connect with the beings there, which is another common experience, are we actually traveling to them in our light bodies? I would say, yeah, yeah. we are. Absolutely. So she says, concludes with, this book shows us the reconnection. It is multidimensional. It is the keeper of the trail of stars we have understood in our faraway past. If cannabis came from the star system Sirius and was planted here, and our bodies had receptors for that plant. What does that mean about us? And that wow. was Hillary, Hillary's take on the Voynich manuscript, which I highly appreciate. And, you know, I'm happy to share today. Super fascinating. I wonder if there, if there's anything in there, I'm going to have to look to see if there's any, thing that looks like mango or black pepper or cacao because those there's a certain group of plants their constituents that have phytocannabinoids that uh, work within the endocannabinoid systems within our body and they basically like work within the glands and then help secrete whatever type of chemical response and obviously cannabis being one of those, but mango, black pepper, cacao, um, and a couple others are have these phytocannabinoids. And I wonder if they're that's when you look at different uh alchemical text, there's there is absolutely correlations to minerals and astrological significance. Um and but not as much as plants in their astrological significance. It is a thing. There, they, it, it does exist, but it's not as like concrete as what you'll get with metals aligning to the stars and you know minerals aligning to the stars. So that's really cool. If that's really what the Voynich manuscript is about, because it's all flowers for most of it. Like it's just like really unique flowers and petals and plants for the large part of the Voynich. That's super cool, man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you go on, there's all kinds of other theories too. I mean, you'll find all kinds of theories online. This is just one of them. Didn't... But this this is the one that happened to resonate for me. It's say the the nervous system is like the psychic highway. 
that allows us to, to have those experiences. So, um, and so maybe she was referring to that too, like maybe the, the, I don't know, the, this, yeah. when we smoke, it lights up the cannabinoid system and then we can see things like see different patternings that take us places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she was, she was a uh, little shout out to her ahead of her time. She was referred to herself as a cannabis nurse. And this was a decade ago when you couldn't be that as forward about this as you are, are now, but she was a cannabis nurse for patients all throughout New York that were in hospice and she would take care of them basically to their dying day with the use of cannabis. And the whole time her closest friends not knowing she was actually ailing with the same disease and she was powerful enough to help everybody else around her, you know, up until the last day when literally until it was announced, none of us knew. But so that being said, she'll be missed, but I hope her research lives on. Yeah. Rest in peace. I'm I'm glad you shared let's, that with us. Uh, that said, let's lighten the mood a little bit before I hand it over to Mark. Just got four quick slides here. The Connecticut Melonheads. Mark and Tara, have you heard of the Melonheads? Yeah. Yep. Grew up looking for them in my friend's house. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Did you find them? No. Or maybe one time. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, yeah, I bring, I'm going to bring up the melon heads because I'm familiar with the melon heads because we have, or have legends of melon heads here in Michigan, too. There's really three states that have the melon head legends, Michigan, Connecticut, and Ohio. And, but what I never realized until I looked into the Connecticut melon heads, that all the legends, even though they're from separate states, have certain correlations that I didn't realize. So just briefly about the Connecticut melon head. According to one variation of the myth, Fairfield County was the location of an asylum for the criminally insane that burned down in the fall of 1960, resulting in the death of the staff and most of the patients within 10 to 20 inmates were unaccounted for, supposedly having survived and escaped into the woods. The legend states that the Melonheads' appearance is a result of them having resorted to cannibalism in order to survive the harsh winters of the region and to inbreeding, which in turn caused them to develop hydrocephalus. Well, this is basically the same story we're told here in Michigan. In Michigan, according to this story, there were originally children with hydrocephalus who lived at the Junction Insane Asylum near Felt Mansion. And the story explains that after enduring physical and emotional abuse, they became feral and were released into the forest surrounding the asylum. And if you look at the Ohio, the same type situation, these feral children that were experimented on, in this case by a doctor, released into the wild. So I just thought it was interesting that 
I'm giving it a little more credence than I used to now that I've seen three separate states all kind of given the same story that these insane patients were experimented on or something happened to the asylum and they ended up in the woods fending for themselves. What um, <laughs> you know? what, what time period was this? Uh, did it say? Was there a time period that fits all the 1960s. stories? 1960s. Okay. So, yeah, 19, say, so they were Michigan, doing a was, lot of experiments yeah. during these times in the asylums with different shock therapy and different uh, really, really sketchy experiments. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, like, honestly, I thought, like, when I saw the Michigan Melon Heads, I have one of those books, you know, Weird Michigan. Pretty much all the states have one. I bet there's a Weird Connecticut and in Weird Michigan, I seen the Melonhead story, and I honestly thought it's probably one of those stories where, you know, parents don't want their kids to go into the woods, and there's Melonheads in the woods. They escape from the asylum. But when I seen the same story in several other states, little different variations, it, I don't know, it gave it a little more credence to me for some reason. You know, do I think they're still out there running around? Not really. But at some point, was there a kernel of seed you know a kernel of truth to it i, I think it's possible hmm. yeah we heard we have a melon head road in our town that is just a road with <laughs> old houses on it that might have you know fallen into the swamp or something but uh yeah i have a one of those books right here connecticut weird books and it basically <laughs> it says that the Melon heads were depicted as human beings with large bulbous heads and globular bulging eyes. They l have lived in the woods for years, and the reason they look so abnormal is due to excessive inbreeding. Uh, but yeah, apparently for locals, <laughs> it's behind Lake Mohegan uh, in Fairfield where they allegedly hang out. And then there's another um, associated legend about the lake baby that is buried at the bottom of Mohegan Lake. So who knows? Maybe that has something to do with those weird um, Bigfoot sightings and other cryptid sightings where they someone hears like a baby crying right before they have a, a scary encounter. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah. There's actually a road called Dracula Drive, too, in, in Fairfield, it says. But... Uh, Huh, interesting. Melon heads. I always yeah, thought no, it was just a joke. I did too, man. Like I said, I thought it was just a joke or an urban legend keeping the kids out the woods. But it's interesting that they're in several different states, all associated with insane asylums, and you know, all basically saying that feral melon heads living in the woods inbreeding. Mm. Interesting. Not sure if I believe it, but interesting. Mm, mm. I don't. That's that's what I got for tonight, guys. Wonderful. Well, <laughs> I hate to do this, but I think we're we're at the end of the the show. It's about two hours, so why don't we uh, why don't we call it a day for now? And then next week, when uh, we have Jason on the show, we'll kick off the show with Jason and. Uh, and wrap up the show with my presentation and then our final yeah. thoughts on the the past three and then four episodes. So 
Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. Great job, Roman, Tara, Chad. Chad, your presentations are always so well put together. I don't know how you do it so quickly. Thank you for putting all that awesome, uh, all those awesome graphics together. Very cool. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that was was epic. And yeah, a great, um, great homage to your friend and fellow researcher mm. that has brought so much to the table. And, you know, she really, she really did bring a lot to us. Like for people that are into, you know, esoteric and alchemy and things like that, it's, it's, it's a really big proponent. So, um, thanks for sharing that with us tonight, brother. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'm glad to. Right on. Yeah. I ought to show that to Chris Bennett. That's very similar to the book he's put together. I don't know if he touches on the Voynich manuscript, but he makes a very great argument for cannabis being, uh, you know, an ancient healing yeah. tool recognized by most cultures around the world. So checks out with everything she mm-hmm. seems to uh, say. And who knows, maybe it comes from Sirius or, or even the Pleiades. Maybe this is an intergalactic plant that has blessed us with, uh, uh okay. yes roman roman doesn't need any convincing and i probably don't either i mean i'm i don't think any of us do no we love weed on this show so anyways rock on folks thank you for tuning into this episode uh thank you chad as always uh you can find chad at his website the link is in the description below roman is the host of co-host of rising from the ashes he also hosts his own patreon content you'll find that in the description all the links are there tara and i of course can be found on my family thinks i'm crazy.com where you can see all the podcasts i do some art that tara does and soon tara will have her sound bowl healing sessions available for listeners oh. of the show supporters on the patreon and whatnot they'll be able to tune in if they're listening to a bunch of podcasts and they're like you know what i've been listening too much i just need to chill for 20 minutes mm. she's gonna have some cool sound bowl healing tracks nice. and then if, if people want to get their own sound bowl healing session uh she'll she'll take it away from there and it's on her but uh cool we'll see i love it i'm excited <laughs> to see what happens uh and uh thank you folks for tuning in thank you chad roman for joining us here and uh until next time folks enjoy exploring this esoteric america if you do it in a dirigible uh, be sure to leave the matches (laughs) and the lighters uh, at home all right and don't drop the dog (laughs) don't drop the ashtray